Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about one of my personal favorite topics. Quick disclaimer, get that out of the way. We're going to talk about pre-hospital bolus dose uh, nitroglycerin for acute pulmonary edema. We're going to add a few twists, though, as compared to some of our prior podcast discussions on this topic. Uh, We're going to speak with EMS researcher, uh, flight medic, medical student Mike Perlmutter from North Memorial EMS in Minneapolis. He's also a medical student at... Uh, University of Minnesota. Thanks for joining us, Mike. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be here. So Mike's group just uh, published on this subject. It's a similar similar subject, similar take um, to some of our bolus dose IV nitroglycerin work here at MCHD. So anytime we can, we can trumpet the subject, uh, we like to do that here. Mike and I were just talking before we started recording. You know, from my standpoint, it's Every bit of research we have into this topic, into this treatment, to this specific CHF exacerbation group, the acute pulmonary edema, scape, scrape population, whatever you want to call them, uh, I feel like it's something that we really need to talk up. This is a treatment that, you know, if you look at the Wayne State Group's papers, it really seems to decrease intubation rates, seems to decrease ICU length of stay, hospital length of stay. But the big multi-center randomized controlled trial that seems to me would be a a top-tier journal publication hasn't been done yet. Uh, But kudos to Mike and his group for trying to start to lay that foundation. Uh, They've been using bolus dose along with uh, drip IV nitroglycerin in acute pulmonary edema patients uh, there in the Minneapolis area for several years now. And again, Mike's paper was just published in Pre-Hospital Disaster Medicine. We'll include that in the link. And I just wanted to bring Mike on to talk about some of the details from their study, realistically to compare and contrast with the IV nitroglycerin work we've done here at MCHD as well. So before we dive into the study details, Mike, tell us what drove you and your group to develop this protocol within your EMS system and sort of where, where you pulled this from. I think it's a really interesting question, and it kind of comes from a couple of different angles. So one of them is very personal to me, uh, probably six or eight years ago, and, and folks that have heard me talk about this protocol and this treatment at conferences will have heard this story before, but I had a case kind of in the middle of the night that was your uh, prototypical case. I was working a ground ambulance, and uh, we got called for shortness of breath and, and found a lady that uh, you could hear breathing from the sidewalk. And the big giveaway for me, at least in our area, for these types of calls, we get the fire department as first responders. And you can kind of tell when you roll up if it's going to be bad or not, because uh, our firefighters are really good, um, very good at the EMS side of things. And if they can, they'll sort of be moving the patient out of the house toward the ambulance uh, when they, they know we're just about there or they hear us coming. And if it's bad, they're all going to be inside. All the bags are still inside. And on this case, all the bags were inside, the whole crew was inside. Uh, and I walked up to the house and I could hear the the gurgling, you know, that kind of like sucking down the dregs of a milkshake or a, a bad washing machine that we talk about it as an indicator of really bad pulmonary edema. And the long and short is that we walked in, we gave this, this patient a ton of sublingual nitro, 
uh, we put on CPAP in the house, turned it up as high as it would go, carried her out to the truck. And she didn't do well and, and started to have agonal respirations and, and had kind of a very brief cardiac arrest from respiratory failure. And th we got her to the hospital and that call really stuck with me because I was, I, I was thinking to myself, this shouldn't have happened. We should have had some way to stave this off to, to change kind of the clinical course of, of uh, what happened. And it, it just stuck with me. And I thought about it and it sort of stayed in the back burner of my mind for a long time. And then I started to uh, look into it a little more. And I started finding the papers that you were talking about from Wayne State uh, describing bolus dose nitro. I started finding papers from Italy in the 1980s, from Israel in the 80s and 90s, uh, where they were talking about very, very high doses of nitrates being superior to any other treatment. And I started thinking, well, why aren't, why aren't we doing this? Why didn't we have this uh, for this patient who is in such severe distress? So that was kind of the the personal aspect of it uh, for me and the motivation that's kind of kept kept me interested in it for quite a long time. The other was kind of on a more institutional sense. Um, my service, I was I've been involved in kind of QA, QI and research stuff for a while and protocol development. And one of the things we keep a pretty close eye on is we we do RSI or we call it MAM, medically assisted airway management, uh, with sedation and and paralytics. And we were looking at our airway data and realizing that we were intubating a lot of patients for SCAPE or APE, acute pulmonary edema, whatever, heart fit, CHF, whatever we want to call it. And that a lot of those cases weren't going super well uh, because either the, the patient's hemodynamics were really tough or uh, the airway was full of pulmonary fluid, uh, things like that. And they were just very, very difficult to oxygenate and ventilate, even if the tube went in. Uh, with the tools that we had. So we really were looking around and saying, uh, how can we tube fewer of these patients? And that that kind of gave me an opening to walk in and, and really start advocating to say, hey, uh, we should we should change our paradigm and, and start using uh, these higher doses of nitro. And, and kind of here's the here's the baseline work from uh, from all these different groups that have shown that it's that it's safe and feasible. That was really how we got going. That's a that's an excellent story. It's very similar, albeit a little more recent than than the path that I personally took. One of my one of my mentors and an emergency medicine legend, uh, Dr. Kevin Rogers at Indiana University, where I did residency, uh, was an early early proponent with really Amal Matu and and some other EM legends, really downplaying the importance of Lasix in these acute pulmonary edema patients. And really just, we would, we had nitro spray at the time and we would just spray these patients 10, 15, 20, 25 sprays at 400 micrograms of spray. And this was actually, you know, I, my residency time period was between, you know, early 2000s. And so really it was right around the intro of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. And so I remember as an early resident, a late med student intubating all of these because they were tripoding, they were hypoxic, they were tachypnic, they were, you know, in extremis, just like your, just like your lady that you described. Um, and we would just intubate them because, you know, we'd try to give ADLASIX and then, you know, that's going to take six hours and who knows if they're even hypervolemic, <laughs> they may just be shifted, but we intubated them all. And then along comes, uh, you know, non-invasive and, oh, wait, now magically we have this amazing treatment for these folks and 
very, you know, relatively few of them are getting intubated at this point. But from a simple math standpoint, I looked at it and thought, we're spraying these patients with, you know, 20 sprays of, you know, 20 times 400 uh, micrograms. I mean, how many milligrams of nitro is that? Um, isn't, you know, there has to be, this works. I mean, we would spray them. You know, I can remember Kevin over my shoulders, spray again, spray again. There's, you know, when you've given too much, when they start to breathe normally and complain of a headache, that was his, that was his constant, uh, mantra. And it was just a simple math. When I saw these studies of 2000 microgram, you know, or two milligram IV doses, like that's a fraction of what we would spray these folks, you know, and their mouths are dry and you're putting a, a blower on their face. So the pharmacodynamics and the uptake of a, of a sublingual medication in these, in these patients just doesn't seem to be the most optimal route. These, these IV bolus studies really just made sense to me in the same way. And they're such a telltale, uh, you know, they have, they come with their sign most of the time. It's, it's, you know, it can be a diagnostic dilemma, but they often have that look, you know, 220 over 120 sweating with a respiratory rate of 40 that is acute you know, not much else behaves like that realistically. Um, so, yeah, I think that's, that's such an important point. And I think that resonates so strongly with our experience too, that, uh, one of the great things about our EMS system is our medical directors are really emphasize clinical thinking and clinical decision-making. And, you know, the protocol says to give, you know, a couple of sprays of nitro, but we would have folks come in and say the same thing we gave, we haven't stopped spraying since we got there. Uh, and they're still in extremis. So that just so strongly resonates with me that I also had that same thought process of why are we doing this? You know, it's just not working uh, no matter how much we give and the mouth is dry. And then I started looking the same as you, the, the, the pharmacodynamics just don't make sense. Uh, and then you find the IV bolus and it just, it's kind of like the light bulb goes on and you say, uh, this is, this is the key right here. This is the answer. So, so super similar. And as a, as a user of this in, in my clinical practice, and you've used it in yours, you've seen the patients take the breath, right? There's a, there's yeah, a clear, amazing. you push the medication, they take a breath and their respiratory rate just drops. And it's, uh, well, you yeah. see, see that a couple of times and it's like, why am I, you know, not that, not that Kevin sprays back in 2005, 2006 weren't an, a reasonable approach. It's just a matter of there's got to be a better way. Uh, and that's, I think what, yeah. what you've shown with your data. Um, and you know, as far as, is this something that paramedics can, can diagnose? I think we both supported, supported that as well. And, you know, I'm, we taught our paramedics to consider the patients you'd normally spray or, you know, give a sublingual tablet, you know, there's storage issues with the spray and expenses. So we've moved the tabs here at MCHD, which, I'd rather have spray, but you know, the cost difference in the shelf life is, is makes that cost prohibitive. Uh, but I just told them, Hey, if you're going to give them a sublingual tablet and you're going to put them on CPAP or BiPAP and they're hypertensive, that's when you, that's when you give IV bolus, just, just pair it with that, with that patient population, they have that look. That's, that's the one you're looking for. And, uh, we, we did a, a pretty, pretty good job targeting him here at MCHD and we, we QIQA, you know, all these IV bolus patients, um, to look for untoward events. Um, let's, let's kind of start with the basics though, before we get, get too far into side effects and those sort of things, who did you treat? Who did you target in your system? Uh, and what doses of nitro did you use? So, uh, there's, you know, yeah. there's all kinds of ranges here. 
what were your specifics for the listeners? Right. So I think um, what you just said about how you trained your your folks at MCHD is very much along the same lines as what we did. We we said, you know, this isn't for uh, the the subtle uh, CHF exacerbation. You know, maybe somebody ate a few too many peanuts and their blood pressure is you know 150 over 80 and they're they're a little short of breath, but it's a little bit of nasal cannula, oxygen, and a ride to the hospital, and we'll we'll work out the Lasix and and the ACE inhibitor and and whatever. Uh, this is really for that patient that you look at and you go, uh-oh, this is about to be a bad day. Um, so we looked specifically, uh, it's in our paper, uh, one of the figures shows our assessment algorithm for, for using this. One of the big points that we hit on was that we really wanted to, to use this in patients with a known history of CHF, of heart failure, um, specifically to avoid sort of those diagnostic conundrums. Because I think, you know, anybody who's been at it for a little while uh, has had that patient that has COPD or has bad asthma or has pneumonia. And it, it's hard in the field without ultrasound or without x-rays, without labs, without the EMR uh, to know, you know, are these lung sounds because of a, a bad COPD exacerbation and maybe a little bit of underlying heart failure, or is this full-blown uh, ape or scape or, you know, a CHF exacerbation. So uh, we really tried to hammer the idea that uh, we wanted this to be used in patients who had a known history of heart failure to kind of increase the the likelihood that the diagnosis was correct. And then from there, we said, okay, do they, you know, if they have a history of heart failure, do they have symptoms consistent with scape or ape, uh, rails, pink frothy sputum, JVD, orthopnea, you know, if they, they get real short of breath, they say, you know, I slept all, all night in the, or I couldn't sleep, I sat up all night in the chair because if I try to lay flat, I, I can't breathe. Uh, and then, you know, an interesting thing that we did, and, and I went back and forth, uh, Mark Conorado is one of the medical directors at North Memorial, and he and I kind of went round and round on this one. Uh, and our cutoff for blood pressure was 120, which is a little interesting because it's lower than yours was, and it's lower than what you see in, in the hospital-based stuff. Uh, but because we put this focus on, on the history of CHF and, and symptoms, we also didn't want to exclude patients who might benefit from it. Uh, because their blood pressure was a little lower than that, you know, 180, 190, 200 kind of thing. Uh, so that that was really who we uh, who we picked. And then uh, the way our protocol works is we would give two sprays of nitro, so uh, 0.8 milligrams, 800 micrograms sublingual nitro. And then we'd reassess and say, okay, are they still hypoxic? Are they still severely short of breath? Do they still have all those symptoms? If they do, then go ahead and work on getting the IV established. And once the IV is established, give them a 400 microgram bolus of IV nitro. So that's that's another place where we differ uh, from your work uh, at MCHD and from some of the published literature is that we used 400 micrograms of IV bolus nitro as opposed to one milligram, two milligrams, uh, that kind of thing. Sure. So did you, uh, two quick points there to make. Um, yeah. You know, we... I totally agree with the fact that there is tons of, and we know this from, you know, from looking at the overlap, the Venn diagram of COPD and CHF, you know, they're just, you know, lots of folks have both and right. no, you know, are you in a full CHF exacerbation, acute pulmonary edema with some component of bronchospasm? Is it the opposite where you're, you know, mostly bronchospasm with some pulmonary edema and hypertension? I really think that there's a spectrum there in those patients where it's not clearly all the time, one or the other. I do think that what you've shown, though, that's interesting is that you can 
lower that blood pressure and lower the dose and and still be you know on the safe side and we'll talk more about the details on that here in just a second um the, you know the second point too is that realistically you know using smaller doses you can, you can always add that's the other that's the other you know if folks are concerned out there about using a, a milligram or two milligrams you know you can give 400 and assess and 400 and assess 400 and assess and be at 1.2 milligrams. I don't know that there's necessarily one right or wrong way to dose this. I think it's all based on clinical clinical comfort. And for the listeners out there that are concerned about the diagnostic ability of, you know, pre-hospital providers, you know, we did not require the patient to have a history of known congestive heart failure in our group of patients. And we did treat a couple COPDers and a pneumonia um, that were hypertensive, that were short of breath, that were hypoxic, you know, would have, would have passed based on looking at the chart review as a potential, you know, acute pulmonary edema patient. Then when you looked in the ED records, they had a lower lobe infiltrate or they had tons of wheezing and a normal BNP and no sign of pulmonary edema on the x-ray. Like, ah, that wasn't a, that wasn't an eight patient. But what we saw was that those patients did not bottom their pressures either. Uh, so I don't think we necessarily have to be perfect in these folks either, as long as we are using good, solid guidelines and assessing the patient after we dose them and, you know, walking in with some clinical framework and knowing we don't have to be 100%. I don't think we got a bad 1,000 on these folks. I don't think we want to willy-nilly give it. I, that's why you write good protocols. But there's a, a safety factor there that that is really favorable. So on that note, talk about your adverse events, you know, people concerned about hypotension, obviously, you know, syncope, arrhythmias, acute MIs. Um, did you, what did you guys see? Did you guys see adverse events? We saw uh, basically nothing. So I think your, your point uh, just earlier there is, is super well taken. And I think that was one of the, like your paper, your, your guys's work up there was super helpful to me uh, as we were writing this paper and thinking about things uh, just because you know, it's not a randomized trial, which I think we'll talk about that more about that in a while. But uh, when I look at your paper and what we found and some of the other work out there, I think that's what jumps out to me is that you're right. I don't think you have to bat a thousand. We're not going to bat a thousand. And even if we aren't, it's still super safe. So uh, we found one episode of hypotension in our series uh, that patient had an initial blood pressure of 126 over 54 after a dose of sublingual nitro. And then the, the lowest blood pressure was 73 over 44. That happened about six or seven minutes after they got uh, the bolus dose of nitro. And then three minutes later, the BP was back up in the 90s. And at the ED, it was in the one teens, one tens, one teens. And the patient had no had no symptoms. There was no angina. There was no altered mental status. There was no, no headache or nausea, vomiting, nothing like that. Uh, we didn't have any cases of syncope or altered mental status, no chest pain, no cardiac arrests. Um, so really, you know, it, it, I you know, I have to acknowledge the limitations, which is that it's a small paper, a small number of patients, uh, and it's pre-hospital data, which isn't always the most robust. But uh, in your series and our series and the hospital series, they all seem to come to this point of you can give these massive doses of of nitro, ranging from you know a fairly modest dose in our case to a pretty good sized dose in your case to a pretty significant dose in the hospital, and 
maybe you get a couple cases of, of mild hypotension that resolve either on their own or maybe with a couple hundred cc's of, of fluid. And I think if I remember correctly, in, in one of the Wayne State papers, they had a patient who, who was briefly hypotensive. They gave him some fluid and then gave him more nitro uh, to keep improving the, the dyspnea. So oh, I think your point. Yeah. Of, Their doses were huge. I, I mean, they gave massive, right? two, two, yeah. mil, two milligrams. And some of those patients got 9, 10, 11, 12 doses of two milligrams. Right. If you go back, you spoke on the, the Israeli and the Italian studies. You know, some of the right. Israeli studies, they gave three milligrams with Lasix yeah. and their hypotension right. the rate Israelis, was still less than 5%, you know? Right, right. Yeah, the Israelis aren't screwing around. I mean, they gave a ton, a ton of nitrates. And and like you said, the, there's just not any significant incidence of, of adverse events. So uh, I think I think it's another uh, set of set of evidence that suggests that nitro pre-hospital is, is pretty safe. Uh, oh, and I wanted to say too, I think your uh, one really big strength of your guys' paper was that you got ED follow-up on on all or or most of, of your patients and the, the paramedics diagnosis was, was correct in so many cases because I think that is often uh, a big criticism, especially from people who don't do pre-hospital medicine that Oh, that you know they can't diagnose in the field um, that old saw, and I think that that's just slowly but surely being put to rest. So, I think that's a, a point really well taken. Yeah, our our accuracy in in the one in the folks that we treated, our accuracy was was greater than ninety percent. And I'll be honest, that was probably higher than than I expected. There is a uh, Australian paper out there that looks at the diagnosis of of acute CHF exacerbation by pre-hospital providers um, that shows you know, really a quite a bit lower accuracy, um, from a paramedic uh, standpoint, which I, I don't know the answer why the difference exists there. I would hope that part of it is education. And we spent, and I'm sure you guys did the same. We spent a, a lot of time educating, talking about, you know, breaking down sort of the silos of CHF exacerbation into that chronic volume overload patient that you mentioned that he ate a few extra peanuts or, you know, salted, um, you know, watermelon at 4th of July picnic or whatever, you know, it's 95 degrees in Texas, July, you know, heat and salt and, and poor diet and those sort of things. You know, that's not the patient that we're targeting. We're also, you know, pull out cardiogenic shock, right? That's another form of CHS exacerbation. This is not that either. You know, these are those hyperdynamic sympathetic surge, tripoding, acutely ill patients that are really a subset of CHF exacerbation. And with that specific specific education, that's what I like to think um, allowed us to be to be more accurate. Yeah, you know, and again, we did we did miss some, um, but you know the ones that we missed. Even when I looked at those charts and and read through those thoroughly, it's like, huh? Eh, if I'd have been presented with that, I'd have probably thought that was acute pulmonary edema as well. And again, like you said, there was no no untoward events. And again, there was some. Some backlash, some interesting uh, social media comments that we got when we published we published ours. I hope you guys don't get the same because I think it's a little bit of a lack of understanding of American uh, pre-hospital EMS care. You know, there were a lot of folks that, I shouldn't say a lot, several folks that replied to us basically referring to these papers out of the 80s and the 90s from, from Europe and from Israel saying this has all been done before. You know, what's what's the big deal? We know this. And the difference there is that in, in almost all of those studies, I think all of them, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, those were all uh, physician 
first responder assisted systems. So in other words, there was a there was a doc on the truck or on the response team for all of those studies in Israel and in Europe. Whereas in America, we're you know you your group, our group, we're sending ground based and air based paramedics out to initiate this treatment. So that's a fairly big difference um, in, in my eyes from those studies, aside from the Lasix edition and some of the other dosing differences. You know, this is a paramedic-driven uh, diagnosis, paramedic-driven treatment in both our work and yours. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, I, d I definitely agree with that. I think uh, I also believe that's correct about, about both the, the European and the Israeli studies is they are physician-driven. Uh, so I think it is a, a big distinguishing uh, factor that that it is that this is that this work at my shop and at yours is is paramedic diagnosis. It's paramedic uh, treatment, and it's it's done without uh, at least at ours, and I think also at yours, it's done on standing orders. It doesn't require a, a phone call with with a physician to authorize the treatment. It's just uh, is this your field diagnosis, or is this your diagnosis in the field? Uh, and is this the right treatment? And, and then you go ahead and do it. So I think it's a, an important, an important point to make. Absolutely. No, no direct online uh, medical direction in our, in our study either. So when you compiled all your data, you're you know, obviously you've got this across the finish line, got it published, which from, from my standpoint, doing this once uh, 12, 18 months or so ago, super congrats huge kudos. I know the pain that's involved with formatting and biblios and uh, revisions and editors. So when you got all that together, you compiled all your data, did IV bolus, IV drip, nitro work? And what were your bottom line findings? And just for a second, if you, you know, cause we didn't, we didn't add the drip here at MCHD. Talk a little bit about your, your final bottom line results and your reasoning behind adding the drip in your service. I think the bottom line as I see it is that a, it works, and B, it appears to be safe. So I think the caveats to that, you know, for any of the the hardcore research people, is obviously it's retrospective data. So you can't say, you know, with any causality that yes, it works definitively, and yes, it's safe definitively. But I think uh, looking at the sum total of the evidence from previous papers, your paper, this paper, it seems to be pretty safe. And it seems to be pretty effective. So when you look at the major society guidelines for reduction of blood pressure in hypertensive crisis uh, and patients with heart failure, what they want is about a 20% reduction in blood pressure acutely. And it was one of those highly satisfying moments as a researcher where we ran the numbers and our reduction in blood pressure was almost precisely 20%. So that, that was very satisfying. So in our cohort, uh, we had these elevations in blood pressure with severe dyspnea and hypoxia. The blood pressure improved. The median SpO2 in our group was 88% prior to IV nitro. And I think it's also an important caveat that I, I got some questions when we presented this as a poster, uh, the abstract as a poster, about the exact uh, findings and when they happened in relation to the nitro dosing. So people were, I think, justifiably a little bit confused about were these improvements from baseline, were these improvements after treatment. And I think it's important to say that this is a super sick population. So when we say the initial blood pressure was, eight, or not blood pressure, pulse ox, the initial pulse ox was 88%. That's after they already got 800 micrograms of sublingual nitro, and they're still hypoxic at 88%. 
they got the dose of IV bolus nitro five minutes later, they're up to 92%. And by the time we get to the ED, they're at 94%. So I think the big takeaways are uh, that it appears to work. It reduces the blood pressure. It improves the pulse oximetry. And uh, we did it with a dose that's smaller than most studies, uh, or I think any studies have done previously. So that 400 microgram dose. Uh, as to the drip, this was another one we went round and round on. So one of the challenges and also kind of one of the fun parts about the service I work at is that our geographical area is really, really big. So we have both metro operations in the Minneapolis area where our, our average transport times can be 5, 10, 15 minutes. And then we have uh, both air-based and ground-based uh, units further in, in the rural areas of the state and in western Wisconsin where transport times can be 30, 40, 60, 80 minutes. So pretty significant transport times. And really we added the drip uh, for, those, for those folks primarily. Uh, so our protocol was if we anticipated a transport time longer than 10 or 15 minutes and the patient was still uh, in extremis to some degree, we would start the drip and go up from there. Uh, as needed. And I think an interesting finding was that in our series, the median uh, dose for, for the infusion was 80 micrograms a minute, and it didn't really change. So the protocol said, start the drip at 80 a minute, and then go up or down as you need to. And what we saw in that uh, is that in almost all those cases, they didn't have to titrate it, which really kind of makes me wonder, uh, A, was it necessary? And B, what would we find in future studies if we uh, you know, either took out the drip entirely, uh, even on those longer transports and just said, if they have uh, you know, more distress or ongoing distress, just keep bolusing, uh, or what might happen if we, if we changed the starting dose or, or made it kind of mandatory to titrate up. I, I'm not really sure, but that was kind of our thinking with the, with the uh, infusion was just to accommodate those very long transport times. And for MCHD listeners out there, it's the exact reason why we just stuck with the bolus was that, you know, our transport times are, you know, in that 20, 30 minute range at the longest. So by the time you've gotten the patient packaged and loaded up and you've given a couple, you know, doses and reassess the patient, you're pretty close to the hospital. So we didn't feel like that the cumbersome portion of the drip setup and the risk of medication error there was worth the extra extra effort, so to speak. I will say that, you know, kudos for starting at 80. Uh, it's, sometimes it's hard to start at 80 or 100 in the hospital. You know, nurses yeah. in the ED are often programmed to start at 5 to 10, 15 mics per minute. And it really takes a quick math lesson to say how long it takes to give a sublingual equivalent at 5 mics per minute. I mean, come on, let's, let's do yeah. Let's do a little bit more than a, than a squirt gun here. So 80 uh, Absolutely. Is, is a reasonable starting point. So it may have just been that you started at that in that 80 to hundred range. I know a lot of uh, speakers and, and authors and, and folks have, you know, talk about that 100 mics per minute or even 200 mics per minute is the ideal starting point for a drip. So, you know, right. kudos for starting at a, at a decent spot there. So yeah, you've got listeners out there that are, you know, we're adding small little bricks to the foundation is the way that, that I feel about this retros retrospective data. You know, there's there's not a whole lot out there in the pre-hospital space. We, you know, both of us have, have talked at length offline about, you know, what would be your grand uh, wish study, but we got to start somewhere. And we started with these, these small little retrospective uh, data collection data points. 
But we've got listeners out there who are like, I don't know, you know, 400 microgram bolus, a milligram bolus, just, I don't, I don't know about it. So if you're an EMS service that's listening, you're a, a ground-based, helicopter-based, air, air, air program, flight program, you're thinking about rolling out hydrose nitrates for acute pulmonary edema, what advice would you give to those, those administrators, those, those folks in the, in the business of writing the protocols? Where were some of your biggest hurdles? What, what advice would you give them? I think, you know, as with everything, I, I'm sort of a broken record on this one, but I think the training and education piece is critical. Uh, I think we have providers who have an understanding of sort of the basics of heart failure and acute pulmonary edema that happens. But I think, you know, even I learned quite a bit as I was doing the literature search uh, for this protocol and for for writing the paper, because I think there's not a good discussion of of the, you know, and it, and it really comes down to, I, I hate to say it, the, the med student in me, you know, kind of cringes admitting this, but I think the biochemistry and the cellular physiology is actually really important in this particular case, because if you go way back to when they could actually do these studies, uh, you know, without an IRB saying, you know, what are you crazy? No, you're not doing that. Uh, is that the dose of nitro really has an impact on what part of the vascular system is going to dilate and how, how it's going to dilate. So I think we have this sort of basic understanding of preload and afterload and all this stuff. But one of the things I've discovered teaching this at conferences and talking to coworkers and things is the idea of arteriolar vasodilation and, and how you have to dilate uh, the arterioles to get a true improvement in dyspnea for these really, really sick uh, patients with the true hypertensive crisis. So I think that's going a little detailed, but I think it emphasizes how important the training and the education piece on this is making sure uh, that the staff really understands why we're doing this and why it works. Uh, and and why these higher doses and and the IV route work better than the way we've always been doing that been doing it. The other I think is um, kind of along that same line, but just reinforcing again, like we talked about earlier, just that you're treating the right patient. That we shouldn't be throwing this at every person who has CHF and might be a little bit short of breath. That it really is for uh, you know the the fairly severely dyspneic patient who you're pretty sure. Uh, that this is the underlying pathology. That's one lesson. I think the other is sort of this debate about blood pressure cutoff. I think you can go with a higher blood pressure cutoff and you can increase the odds that your diagnosis will be correct. I think when you look at the literature, most of these patients who benefit tend to have blood pressures at least 160, 170 systolic um, maps, you know, north of 100 or 110 at least. Um, but you're probably going to have a few patients who might benefit who won't get it because they don't meet the blood pressure cutoff. So you can go on the lower end like we did and you'll probably pick up a couple of extra patients who benefit, but you'll also probably treat a few patients who have a, a different diagnosis like asthma or COPD. The other is, uh, this is my, my third and last piece of advice, which is I'm really not sure what to say about the drip. Um, it certainly makes studying it harder because you have the confounding effect of both bolus and drip and it's a little bit hard to tease out what caused what uh was it the bolus that was the cause of the patient's improvement or was it the drip or was it both i think that's sort of a, a discussion that has to happen service to service and and you figure out you know how long are your transport times 
uh, and, and what benefit do you get from the drip? Do we have the equipment to do the drip, to do the infusion on a pump, that kind of thing? I think those are those are the big ones that I took away from this. Oh, actually, you know, I'll add a I'll add a fourth. Uh, this the uh, the the medics love this. I've had so many. There my, you go. There you go. That's yeah. why I was hoping you would hit that one. That was yeah, yeah, this yeah. was unprompted, listeners. I did not pay him to say this. No, uh, this he, was no, totally didn't. unprompted. I actually meant to say this, but when we were talking offline, because I uh, before we started recording, because I. I've compared it to like D50 for a hypoglycemic diabetic or Narcan yes, for an opioid yes, overdose. Yes, yes. It's there there's so few things in emergency medicine that work instantly and are so satisfying and I can't tell you the number of people who've texted me at you know all hours of the day and night saying, "Hey, I did this for the first time. It's the coolest thing ever." You know, like the patient was going to die and we did this and they they looked great. You know, we got to the uh, a friend of mine texted me and said, uh, you know, we had a bit of a longer transport time. We got to the hospital and the, the doc in the ED didn't believe him. He's like, this patient, why did you treat this patient? Like he looks, you know, he looked so good after, after they gave a couple boluses of nitro that uh, the patient's sitting there reading the newspaper, so to speak. So I think if you're looking to implement this, you can really sell it uh, that way. You know, tell your crews, hey, go out and do this a couple times and you'll be a convert because it just works so, so well. Uh, it's so satisfying to see it work in real time. So I had to sell it to to my medical director, uh, Rob Dixon, who's not on with us today, but often on the show with me. When I brought this yeah. into the office, I he might have given me three seconds of thought with this idea and quickly just was like, what are you talking about? And I said, and just hammered away a little by little. I said, in your practice, the next time you have the patients that, or the perfect ones to try it on are the, the hemodialysis misdialysis patients yeah, because you yeah. can really shift the volume with them. Granted, you're not going to diurese anything because they need, they need filtered, but you can shift them and you can temporize them and make them comfortable while they're waiting for their chair. And I just said, I said, listen, next time you get the 260 over 160 sweaty hypoxic patient that hasn't run for six or eight days, give them a milligram, give them two milligrams, see what happens and come talk to me afterwards. Just, just humor me and do it. You can't bottom that patient out. There's no way you're right, not, you're not, right. they're not going to syncopize. They're not going to have an untoward event. Take the sickest, most hypertensive of the hypertensive. And, uh, that's how I sold him. He said, they took a breath. It's like they took a breath and started <laughs> breathing normally. I said, because you shifted the volume, you dilated both sides of the vascular vasculature, just like you talked about the venous side and the arterial side that allowed room for the volume to shift out of the lungs and they can breathe again. And so that I would totally agree for the listeners out there. Once your medics start using it, they're going to be sold because it really is a marked quick, just like D50, just like Narcan, just snap the fingers 180. I would also say too the second part that I would add onto your uh, endpoint there for all you cost conscious folks out there. The nitro bottles are super cheap. This is super, super cheap. cheap. We use a uh, um, uh, hundred mics per mil, just the the bot the normal drip bottle that you see hanging, and end up tossing it after we use it. But it's super cheap, and we give a 10 mil dose and can repeat that 10 mils. Um, we're kicking around the idea about upping our dose or increasing our number of doses here at MCHD, especially with COVID, trying to avoid non-invasive ventilation if possible, trying to avoid, avoid viral spread, another topic for another day. Um, but we've gone, gone a bit over normal here. It's shocking. It's my, 
my pet subject and yours as well. But let's close, <laughs> let's close up. I want to close up with one more question and we'll wrap this thing up. Where do you see this going in the future? We've touched on this a bit. And do you have plans on expanding or changing the protocol at North Memorial? I think probably because the protocol worked exactly as we designed it to. We don't have any immediate plans to change it. I think one thing we've discussed is uh, looking at whether the bolus can be separated from the drip and see if we get a similar result. I think in a perfect world, you know, I'd, I'd love to see a true randomized controlled trial. I don't have five or $6 million sitting around, unfortunately, uh, to do it, which I think is is what it would take to, to truly randomize and do community consent and all of the, the ethical protections that you need for, for a true RCT. One idea that we've kicked around is a crossover kind of study. Um, we're still kind of exploring whether that's feasible and and what kind of um, what kind of IRB approval and process would be necessary to do that. So that's kind of where I see it going. Is I think we have these these papers from the in hospital setting and from Europe and Israel, and your paper uh, kind of in similar dose ranges, and then you have this paper of ours that's at this much lower dose range. So I think trying to tease out is there an optimal dose? Does the dose not matter? so much uh, for patients that are really in extremis um, and just just kind of trying to tease tease that out. I think you, you alluded to it, I think in a perfect world too, we'd try to tease out what's the effect of nitro versus what's the effect of non-invasive ventilation. Uh, but I think non-invasive is such a standard of care that I'm not sure uh, if, if we could randomize patients to it or not, uh, but I think that would definitely be something to explore too. I'm unsure if we could even randomize to to nitrates at this point. I feel like it's, I don't know. Right. I don't know if you're if you're dealing with equipoise issues there as well. We've we've kind of thought about the crossover and removing the the bolus for a bit, and then seeing what the two patients patient groups look like after we roll it back in. Uh, but bottom line is, I feel like if my family member was sick with a with a pulmonary edema exacerbation, and they were in the month that it didn't get IV bolus nitro or the six month period or whatever. I'd almost feel like they were getting the shaft and from a right. basal standpoint, you can't do that. Um, right. And I also don't, you know, I would agree with you. CPAP BiPAP is just, this is a pair. I don't know that we're ever going to separate these two. I think they're both needed in these patients. They're so sick. I don't see ever trying to tease them out. Listeners out there that are interested, I'll close up with one final point from, from the Levy studies and from ours you know, a good majority of these patients, two thirds, three quarters, only required a single dose or a couple doses, you know, so is the drip needed in all of them? No. Is the drip needed in a majority of them? Probably not, but there probably is that quarter of patients that may need it. So that would definitely be an interesting area uh, to pursue for somebody who had more, more research ammunition than we have here at MCHD than you guys do have it at North Memorial. And I think both of us agreed on offline before talking that this this randomized, blinded, in-hospital mortality study needs to be done so we can put this thing to rest and show that this improves outcomes, it improves morbidity, improves mortality, decreases hospital length of stay, ICU stay, all those things that we suspect. Somebody out there, uh, I'm, I wish I had that, I don't know if I'd spend that 5 or $6 million on IV nitrates. I might... Uh, go real estate or something, something else. But that being said, I hope this gets done at some point in the future so that we can really call this standard of care and move on. So with that being said, we went a little over, but this is, this is both Mike and I's baby. So, uh, forgive us for that. Hopefully this was 
a nice overview. Again, congratulations, Mike, to you and your group for, for getting this across the finish line. I know what a chore that is to go through all those charts and to deal with the IRB and to deal with reviewers and all the all the pain that that entails. But in the end, you've added a, added a brick to the foundation, and that, that's that's what we have to do. Also, for all the other listeners out there that think they can't do research, really in the end, both of our studies was good QI, good QA. You know, this was this was this was quality control. This was rolling out a protocol with a super sick group of patients and then looking at what happened to those patients after we changed the protocol. Any good EMS medical director, any good, you know, paramedic that's involved in, you know, the clinical department involved in QIQA should be doing this anyways. And when it's novel and when it's effective like like yours has been, Mike, and you've got an avenue to publish that. So uh, congrats. Thanks for joining us today on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Ha- happy to have you back. Uh, at any point, you guys have new stuff you want to talk about, holler at us and we'll, we'll chat again. To all the listeners out there, please leave a like or review wherever you listen to your podcast. If you have questions or concerns, shoot us an email, podcast at mchd-tx.org. As always, thanks for joining us, and we'll talk to you again soon. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.